0: I heard the Christian singing as I approached the church. When she saw me, the girl accompanying with a drum dropped her sticks and ran off screaming as if she'd seen a ghost. I was wearing nothing but a burial cloth. I walked into the funeral service. Twelve hours earlier, my heart had stopped beating. It was my funeral service. So writes Cedric Kanana. Cedric had been raised by a... Uh, Hutu Muslim Sheikh in western Rwanda. His mother, however, was a Tutsi, a priestess in a tribal religion. And he explains this. He says, my family practiced folk Islam, which merges Islam with traditional animism. And from birth, I had been dedicated to God with a blessing to become a leader of the Muslim community there in Rwanda. These plans were disrupted when the country descended into civil war, tore apart our family, There was genocide. There was ethnic hatred. My father divorced my mother while my mother and her children were left to seek out charity. Needing food, I I, I took to living on the streets when I was nine years old. As a teenager, I learned how to bury my pain through drug use, but also how to profit through it. After entering school, I could identify people who were looking to escape problems and pain, and I capitalized on it. I took monthly trips across the border into Congo and returned with drugs to sell, first marijuana but eventually cocaine. By getting other students addicted, I could require them to convert to Islam if they wanted to keep getting their drugs. I longed for my father's approval and sought to remind him of his hopes for me to become a great Muslim leader and to get by Cedric began smuggling and selling drugs, all the while memorizing his Quran and gaining the respect of the local community. He was appointed a mom of his own school. He continues, all that changed one day in my final year of school. While I was warming up for a basketball game, something in my brain seemed to burst. Everything and everyone was terrifying. I had lost my mind, and diagnoses would range from drug-related psychosis to spiritual oppression. The priest of a local god told my mother, when he was born, he was given to you because of your sacrifices to the gods, not from this Muslim Allah. He belongs to the gods, but he has broken the bonds, and this madness is the god's punishment." Ceremonies and sacrifices were performed, but nothing changed. My mother took me to a Western psychiatric hospital in the capital where I received a strong sedative. I stayed there for months. The Muslim leaders blamed evil spirits. They attempted an exorcism. They placed a Quran on my head and began to recite the Surah al baqarah which is the longest section of the Quran, and yet I leapt up in a psychotic rage and began beating them until policemen arrived to subdue me. Cedric lived a life caught between two religions. One demanded obedience to God for salvation. The other demanded obedience to the gods for salvation. It's a major facet of human religion that whatever its flavor, whatever its form, there's this notion that we're supposed to perform uh, either sacrifices or giving money or obeying laws or doing certain rituals in order to get the gods to bless us. We give them what they want. They give us what we want. It's sort of a mutual using of each other that is at the core of so much human religion. And yet today we're going to begin looking at the gospel according to St. Mark. And here we're going to see something radically different from human religion. Here we're going to see a similar call to repentance. And yet it's also completely unlike what Cedric experienced growing up in a racially and and religiously divided community in Rwanda. We're going to start at the beginning, Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. I'll read through verse 31. The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John came, baptizing in the desert region and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey, and this was his message. After me will come one more powerful than I, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. As Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. At once the Spirit sent him out into the desert. and He was in the desert 40 days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. And after John was put in prison... Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. And at once they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets, and without delay he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. Then they went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach, and the people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Just then a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an evil spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, Jesus said sternly. Come out of him. The evil spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The people were so amazed and they asked each other, What is this? A new teaching, and with authority, he even gives orders to evil spirits, and they obey him. News about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. And as soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her hand, and helped her up, and the fever left her, and she began to wait on them. What is Jesus trying to communicate in this gospel message? First thing Jesus is telling us is that we do need a radical change of direction in life. Uh, the term that both John the Baptist and Jesus use is the term repentance, uh, metanoia in Greek. It means to, to change direction. You're going one way, you stop, you realize you're screwed up, you turn around, you start going a different direction. It's a, it's a change in your purpose, a change of your mind and of your soul and of the direction of your life. It means a change from looking at God as one looks at a consultant. Instead, now looking at God as one looks to a Lord, a master, an owner. Um, To repent means to think differently about God's claim on our lives. Uh, John came preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And and this involves confessing our sins, uh, agreeing with God. It's what we see with John's disciples. You know, they were confessing their sins and they were baptized in the River Jordan. Um, They're naming their failings before God, and their failings to love their neighbor as themselves. They're they're naming their lack of concern for the poor, the marginalized. They're they're, they're naming their selfishness. They're naming their lust. They're, They're naming the fact that they don't love God very much, and they're owning that. And, and grieving it before God, uh, confessing to God and agreeing with him that my sin is real and I can't fix it myself and no self-help book will clean me up, God. You have to do this. I can do nothing about it. It has to be your grace. And, and that repentance means following Jesus wherever he leads. Uh, you know, in, in the Greek, there's a, we keep seeing this word at once. This happened, and at once Jesus called them, and at once they followed. They, they at once dropped their nets and left their father and all his workers on the boat and followed Jesus. Um, Jesus said, come, follow me, and at once they left their nets and followed him. Uh, without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee. Uh, it, it's a radical change in life direction to follow him wherever he goes, um, wherever he directs you to, to trust him, that he knows what's best. Um, there wasn't any negotiating with Jesus, you know? <laughs> you, those who negotiated were lost. Um, it was a question of, of, are we repentant or not? Am I following Jesus or not? Um, whatever he says, he wants this radical change in, in life direction. And that's because of something that the Holy Trinity is doing, uh, something really amazing here. Um, you know, we see this incredible peak here into the eternal relationship between the persons of the Godhead. You know, it's at Jesus' baptism that here is God the Son, <laughs> that the Father speaks and says, you're my son, and then the voice of the Father speaks and the Holy Spirit comes down like a dove. Here, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who, who got along fine without us before the beginning of creation in space and time. You know, here they are speaking to one another acting with one another, we see this glimpse into the Holy Trinity, this glimpse into the cosmos uh, that that didn't yet exist, into what there was before space and time when, when the Father was loving the Son and the Son was loving the Father and the Holy Spirit was there with them in this eternal community of love. It means that community, that longing that you have for community, that longing you have to be known and to know that longing to be known that gets us into so much trouble, that that longing is from God who made us in his image as ones who need community, who are made for community as he is himself an eternal community. It means community predated creation because it's grounded in theology proper within the the Godhead himself. And here we see what this Holy Trinity is doing with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit all loving each other It means if God is a trinity and is eternal, and this isn't make-believe, then God did not create the universe because He was lonely and needed people to love Him. He had perfect community for eternity, outside of space and time, whatever that means. He had perfect community. Rather, it wasn't because he was looking for love, but because in the overflow of the love between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, that love needed to overflow beyond itself to have more to love, more creation to love, more cosmos to love, more creatures to love, even image bearers to love. It's because he wanted to give love that he created us. Go back to Genesis. In the beginning, the creation account in the, the Hebrew Scriptures where we Adam and Eve, God created them. He said, let us make man in our image. The the Trinity was always a Trinity. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Um, It wasn't a royal we. That didn't exist then. It was God being plural and one. At the same time, and then creating out of the overflow of his love other creatures for him to love, a whole cosmos for him to love, the heavens and the earth and all the things that fly and all the things that swim and all the things that live on the ground and and all the stars and the sky and the sun and the moon and Adam and Eve. And they were naked and they felt no shame because there was nothing about them to be ashamed about because they were perfect with God, walking with him in knowledge and righteousness and holiness and love. That was the intent, that all creation would join in this incredible symphony of praise and love and joy that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit had always enjoyed, that they would create this larger symphony with every single section imaginable, every creature under earth, every inanimate object, every lump of clay, every blow of the wind being part of a symphony to praise him. And then humanity would take our seats, first violin section, second violin section, right there in order to help lead this act of eternal praise entering into the community of the eternal trinity, a community and a song of joy and love and relief. And praise and worship, it's what we see all over the Bible. Isaiah 55, You shall go out with joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills shall break forth into singing before you, and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Psalm 148, speaks of the symphony. Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures and all ocean depths, lightning and hail, snow and clouds, stormy winds that do his bidding. You mountains and all you hills, fruit trees and all cedars, wild animals and all cattle, small creatures and flying birds. Let them all praise the name of the Lord. He's the one who commanded and they were created to think that creation itself, even though fallen, because it's under our dominion and we turn from God. Creation right now, the sun is praising God just by being the sun because it was made to praise and worship God and to be part of this symphony by being what it was made to be. That a squirrel in Forest Park right now or, or an insect crawling on the Great Wall of China right now, is singing the symphony of praise to God. Right now, in reality, all of them together. And, and there's this big section. You, you, you've got all these different things. You've got the woodwinds. You've got all the brass. You've got the upright bass, the cello, the violas, but there's no violin section. Because humanity's not right with God, and we've lost the song. Mark Batterson writes that research in the field of bioacoustics, has revealed that every day we are surrounded by millions of ultrasonic songs. For instance, the electron shell of a carbon atom produces the same harmonic scale as the Gregorian chant. Whale songs can travel thousands of miles underwater. Meadow larks have a range of 300 notes. Super-sensitive sound instruments have discovered that even earthworms have a faint staccato of sound. Arnold Summerfield, a German physicist and pianist, observed that a single hydrogen atom emits 100 frequencies, which is more than a grand piano, which only emits 88. Science writer Lewis Thomas summed it up this way, If we had better hearing and could discern the singing of seabirds, the rhythmic drumming of schools of mollusks, or even the distant harmonics of flies hanging over meadows in the sun, the combined sound might lift us off our feet. There's a symphony of joy and wonder and love and praise that is eternal, that is grounded and brought into the community of the Trinity to worship Him and to enter into His joy and wonder and beauty and delight. God has brought creation into that symphony, and now through Jesus, He's inviting us sinful humans to come back on stage and walk right up into the violin section and take up our instruments again and to join in that eternal symphony of praise with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We have a glimpse of it even right here, united to Jesus. We can then hear the Father saying to us what he says to Jesus when he says, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. The Father saying, You are my child. I love you. And because of Jesus and the good news of Jesus, I am pleased with you. You see, the gospel isn't about advice. The gospel is the declaration of truth, of something that has happened. We see this word gospel twice in this passage, the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ. Gospel means good news. It's a simple uh, uh, Greek word, ooh, for good, and angelos for, for message. Um, Jesus went into Galilee, we reading, proclaiming the gospel of God, meaning the gospel that belongs to God, God's gospel. The gospel that we read is about Jesus Christ, a, a gospel that that term had meaning in antiquity. It was a one who would bring news, announcing something. For example, you can imagine if you were a Athenian at, at the uh, and and you know the Battle of Marathon was taking place, and and and. Here, this massive Persian army has invaded they 've crushed one city after another you 're outnumbered one hundred to one. Your army goes out to the battlefield and and' is far away and all the citizens hide within the city with the gates down and the walls up and, and they 're worried about what might happen because they know they 're probably going to lose and they 're already counting. mothers are already looking at their children, knowing that their children at best will become slaves, knowing that their daughters at best will become slaves, knowing what might happen to the women when the invading army swamps their city, knowing that their men will probably all die unless they're young enough to be taken and trained as slaves or possibly turned into eunuchs. You've already This is already coming. You're, you're preparing yourself for it, and then in the distance from the city walls, you see a little puff of smoke, and, and you realize it's a runner coming, running as fast as he can to the city. He's coming from the battlefield. He's coming to bring news, and he reaches the city walls, and he says, we have been victorious. The enemy is vanquished. The city is saved. That's gospel. Not a bit of advice, but a declaration that God has done something. Jesus has done something. The battle has been won. The city has been saved. You have been redeemed. It is finished. There is nothing more for you to do but to celebrate and throw open the doors of the city and bring the conquering victor into our lives. The gospel about Jesus Christ proclaiming the gospel of God, a piece of news that is so profound it will radically change the direction of your life. It means the message of Jesus is not advice. It's a declaration we read of the forgiveness of sins. that it's already been done. Christ has come. The kingdom of God is here. Your sins are forgiven. There are a lot of folks out there who are ready to give you advice. Some of you who like me, have chronic medical issues, you know that when you ask for prayer for them that you are going to get advice. Uh, And you have already, you know, searched 5,000 hours on the internet and know everything there is to know about this and you've read every single research study there is and you know all the treatment plans and you know all the things that work and all the things that don't work and all the things that might possibly work and the things that are coming down the line but you can't get them legally unless you're in the study and then somebody who has no idea what they are talking about says, you know, you should probably try crunching on ice. I find that helps when I get a headache. Stop it! I don't want that! Nobody wants advice. There's even a saying about unsolicited advice. Don't ever give it. And yet, religious people can be filled with advice. You shouldn't dress that way. You should. not put your hair down like that. You shouldn't do this. You shouldn't do that. So, so much advice. It's worthless. What we need is a declaration. Um, you know. You know the difference. You know. If, if you're if you're in the emergency room at two o'clock in the morning because your child was in a horrible car accident and they had to had to cut your child out of the car with the jaws of life and 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 all of the 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 the, the, the the personnel were were bracing you, this isn't good. We we don't think we think there's still a pulse. We're gonna try to get them to the hospital, but this is this is really bad. And you you walk into that hospital and you watch as your child is is taken through those double doors and you're not allowed to go back there and, and and you're just sitting there waiting and then some person next to you starts giving you advice and you don't listen to a thing they're saying because you only care about one thing. The, only, the one thing that you care about is when those double doors open up again and the surgeon walks out and sits down next to you and takes off her mask and says, we've saved your child's life, they're going to be fine. That's all you care about. That's gospel. That's a declaration, a declaration that God has done something. That is Jesus Christ himself coming through those double doors saying the operation has been a success. You have been saved. That's good news. The gospel about Jesus Christ, God's gospel, the gospel of God. Jesus says, believe the good news. That's what the gospel is, a declaration, not advice, because the gospel is about a person not a plan. We read the gospel about Jesus Christ, God's gospel, God's good news, His declaration, and that means that this declaration is about Jesus. It means that Christianity is a person and not a plan. Christianity is Jesus. Christianity is Christ. That's what a a kingdom is. When when Jesus tells people the kingdom of God is, is here, understand that He wasn't just making a euphemism or something because there's one thing in order to be a kingdom a kingdom has to have that sine qua non without which no kingdom has ever been a kingdom you cannot be a kingdom without one certain thing that is required and mandatory in order to fit into the category of the kingdom what is that a king jesus has come jesus is here the king is here he's saying the rule of God starts with me, Jesus is saying. Jesus is a person, not a plan. You know, there's, there's a, for some of us with our theological training and background, particularly those who are Reformed or Presbyterian, which some of you are, um, you know, there's a need at times to, for lack of a better term, depropositionalize our Christianity Because those of us in the Reformed tradition, which is that that branch of Protestantism that's not Lutheran or Anglican or Anabaptist, but the other one, think Switzerland, Holland, Scotland, um, you know, uh, we can very easily think that Christianity is a philosophy with an ethical code attached. The philosophy is called Reformed dogmatics or systematic theology, and you get all the categories right and you get all the, you list all the propositions and you think you must be saved because you have all the propositions when what the propositions are telling you is actually you need to look at Jesus. Um, and, and we think we've got our ethics down and, and yet that's not what Christianity is. Christianity has never been a philosophy with an ethical code. Christianity is Jesus. Christianity is the rule of God in Christ. And there are all sorts of propositional truths out there that are true and are reliable, but we have to learn that this is all about a relationship and what am I doing with Jesus? Am I yielding to him when I talk to my spouse, when I address my kids, when I talk about my enemies? Am I yielding to the rule of Jesus, my savior? I remember a teacher years ago who was trained in kind of 20th century evangelical uh, uh, dogmatics, and, and I would have to translate what he would say because he'd say something like, there is a biblical principle of the faithfulness of God uh, this is something the scripture teaches, and, and because the principles of the Bible are timeless truths, they should be followed no matter what. And I'd sit there and I'd say, like, okay, let me translate that into English, modern English. I think what he just said is that Jesus is standing before us right now, and he's speaking to us, and he's saying, look, you need to trust me when I tell you what to do, because I have shown myself to be trustworthy. And I know there are things that you feel are right right now, but I'm telling you they're not, and you need to trust me. That's translating it into Christianity is Jesus, not a philosophy with an ethical system. Now, there's certainly an ethical system. God never gave ten suggestions. You know? <laughs> Don't hear what I'm not saying. But it's about a person, not a plan. Jesus doesn't bring us good news. Jesus is the good news. He doesn't bring us a kingdom. He is the king that makes it a kingdom. You know, there's this symphony, and all creation has joined in to the symphony of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit lifting up the name of the triune God on high simply by being what they are, and God's inviting the violins to come back in and take your seat, pick up your instrument, and join in the praise because it's good news, a declaration that Christ has already done everything. After a year on antipsychotic meds, uh, Cedric's mother took him to an Anglican church where a Christian friend of hers was a member, and Cedric writes this. He says, the pastor and four church members fasted and prayed for seven days, singing songs of peace, laying hands on me each night, and on the seventh night, I felt as though I were coming up through water. I heard the name Jesus said over and over and over again until I began to know myself again. And and walking home that night, I believed that Jesus had restored me, that he was stronger than the evil spirits, stronger even than the antipsychotic drugs that, that kept me alive, stronger even than the Quran, but I didn't know Jesus. What followed was a situation that many Muslims have faced. I could not deny the power of the name of Jesus, but telling the truth risked bringing shame on my family, possibly me even being killed. During daily prayers, I found myself praying not to God but to Jesus. And this dilemma endured for Cedric for seven months as he returned to school. And then one day during class, Cedric experienced a seizure. He fell to the floor. He was foaming at the mouth. Western doctors couldn't identify a cause within a week. Doctors at the top hospital in Rwanda began palliative care. He fell into paralysis. They didn't expect him to live. Around 9 p.m. one evening, he became aware of medical personnel rushing all around him. His heart had stopped. He explains The next morning, 12 hours later, with my grave dug and my body being washed and clothed for Muslim burial, I coughed, tossed aside my sheet, and I stood up, and the people all ran away screaming. Confused, I looked around, realizing someone must have died. Turning to a huddled group that was staring at me, I saw a familiar face. I saw Jesus. Cedric says he recalled having seen four menacing figures in dark robes and taloned hands, tormenting him, mocking his powerlessness to resist, and yet then in their midst he saw another figure appear, and he realized it was Jesus, and the other four creatures disappeared into the mist." He says, I have no idea how long Jesus stood looking at me, but I felt perfect contentment. And when he finally spoke, he lifted his hands, revealing holes in each one, and he said, You are among those for whom I died. Do not deny it anymore. You must tell others. That day, he writes, I went directly to church, still wearing my burial cloth, to my own funeral. Cedric accepted the reality that Jesus had already saved him. He followed Jesus that day and was baptized. We have his photograph here. Um, Cedric is now an Anglican priest, a pastor, and he works in a prison as a chaplain to those who are imprisoned. He writes, Although my father first tried to kill me, both he and my mother, along with my siblings and many from my community, have since found Jesus. And today I know I carry the blessing of Jesus' name. Let's pray.